was Bill Gaither and the vocal band. Steve's got better hair than Bill. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. We're going to continue what we started this morning about a spiritual checklist for serious believers. We talked this morning about how we handle suffering and setbacks and sorrow will determine the extent to which God can work in our lives. And we talked about how we handle relationships with other people, pursue peace with all men. We'll determine to what extent God can work in our lives. And so we're going to continue to look at this tonight, and I want to again read beginning in verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance though he sought for it with tears. The writer of Hebrews is wrapping up his letter. It's been a long letter, and he's reminding the believers of their responsibilities. And sometimes in this letter, he goes back and forth between the Old and the New, and he contrasts the Old Testament or the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, and he will do that in a section of this last chapter. But he goes back to refer to the Old Testament because these were converted Jews. They were very familiar with the scriptures. They would have understood the point. They would have understood the illustration. And so I want us to go to his third area where he's trying to get them to focus in and do their own spiritual checklist, and that is this. How you handle yourself, your life, your walk with God, not how you handle other people, but how you handle yourself will determine the extent to which God can work in your life. And the first thing I want us to look at is, am I seeking to please God or please myself? Mark made us think about that a few moments ago in the song that we're going to sing at the end of the service, uh, the new song that we learned in that worship package, reminds us it's not about me. It's all about Him. Am I seeking to please God or myself? We live in a culture where people are always wanting to know what's in it for me. What am I going to get out of it? And yet Jesus said, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. And the, what the writer of Hebrews does here is he tells us we are to pursue something in our relationship with God, and that pursuit is to be a pursuit of sanctification, a pursuit of holiness, a pursuit of being set apart, of consecrated for God's work. Am I pleasing God because I'm pursuing sanctification? This is a fulfillment of Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God is looking for people who want to be pure in heart, not for people who are trying to figure out how much can I get away with, how, how much can I live on the edges, but how much can I be like Jesus? Not how little can I do for God, but how much can I do to be more and more like him in my daily living and in my walk. The scripture says, be holy as he is holy. Now, you know, there are some scriptures I, I can't explain. I can't tell you what the third toe of the right foot of the fourth rider of the third horse 
uh, is. I can't tell you any of that stuff, but I can tell you this. I, I know what holy is supposed to look like because holy is supposed to look like Jesus. You know, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand that bother me because those are the ones that God expects me to live up to. I may not understand every point of prophecy. I may, may not every, understand everything about the book of Ezekiel, but I know this. When God tells me I'm to be holy... talking about I mean I could be holy if the guy in front of me would just drive the way he's supposed to drive if they use their blinkers you know I mean I, I could be holy if I didn't have to sit in a fast food line and get the wrong order when I pull out you know that's the only thing keeping me from holiness order a number two and a large Coke, and I get a number five and a Diet Pepsi. I mean, you know, it, it, you, you can't be holy when people do that to you. It's just impossible. But he says we're to pursue holiness and to pursue sanctification with God. Now, turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And, and you remember now, he's talking about pursuing a relationship with others that is right and pursuing a relationship with God that is right. In other words, you and I cannot have a right relationship with God if we're not right with others, and we can't be right with others if we're not right with God. They're two sides of the same coin. Philippians chapter 2, and then we're going to go to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 2 would wipe out a lot of believers. Verse 14, Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Now, why am I supposed to do all things without grumbling and disputing? Well, I'm pursuing sanctification so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Now, it appears to me there that if I'm grumbling and disputing, then I'm not the light that I need to be in this world that I have not proven myself to be what I need to be in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. The church, God's people, need to be different, distinctive. Now turn to Philippians 3. Philippians 3. And, and Paul is writing this letter, and really the letter of Philippians is as good a letter to as good a church as you'll find anywhere. But Paul is writing this letter, and he doesn't say a few of you, verse 18, for many walk... Not just one or two here and there. Not an isolated case of people doing this, but many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, or King James says their belly, and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. 
Vance Havner said, I used to say that civilization was going to the dogs, but I had to quit out of respect for dogs. He said, you know, he said, hotels need to put up a sign. We will let your dog stay if you'll treat your room as good as your dog will. Because he said, so many hotels get trashed by human beings. Dogs will take care of a room better than a human being will. Civilization's gone to pot, and guess what's happened? The church has gone right along with it. George Barna says there's no distinction between what the belief system and the actions and the attitudes of the church and that of the world. Dr. Havner said that we ought to watch and pray because of the shortness of the time, the seriousness of the hour, and the shallowness of our nature. One of the most popular TV preachers, he doesn't have a church, I don't think a church would put up with him, but one of the most popular TV preachers in America today is on his third wife. Now let me ask you something. How can he preach the whole counsel of God if that's the case? He's about to buy the music mansion in Gatlinburg and host his conferences where he will have thousands and thousands of people come to listen to him teach his version of what God says. One popular pastor in California, two months ago, Jim Simbla was telling us about this a few weeks ago, one popular pastor in California stood up a few weeks ago and introduced his new wife, his second wife, to his congregation and introduced her by saying this, God did not call me to marriage. God called me to the ministry. And his church stood and applauded him. That's the kind of culture we live in, and that's the kind of church culture we live in. And I want to tell you something, folks. You can argue if you want to, but that mentality, their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame. If a man can't keep his house in order, he shouldn't be pastoring a church. That's what the scripture says. I didn't make that up. That's not my rule. That's God's rule. If a man cannot do what God says in his word, he shouldn't deceive his people by thinking he's qualified to do something that the scripture says he's not qualified to do. He may be qualified to do a lot of other things, but he's not qualified to do that. Now, turn if you would, uh, hold your place in Hebrews and turn to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 tells us who can get into the presence of God. Who can get into the presence of God? Who can get into God's presence and see God and know God and sense what God is doing and have a heart for God? How do we pursue sanctification? Psalm 24 and verse 3. Familiar words, you know it, but you may want to write Psalm 24 and verse 3 in the margin of your Bible by Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. What that tells me is that the hands and the heart, what you do and what you are, are connected. They're not disconnected. They're not disenfranchised. They are connected. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Am I pleasing God or just pleasing myself? Secondly, am I a help or a hindrance to the family of faith? Am I a help or a hindrance to the family of faith? 
Am I helping the church grow? Am I helping my fellow believers grow? Or am I hindering them in something I'm doing or not doing? And notice what he says. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. The root word means to have oversight. To have oversight. That we are to keep a watch to detect if there is anything in a brother or sister in Christ that we see is causing them to begin to slip in their walk with God. See to it that no one, oh, well, you know, you win some, you lose some. You know, every church has got inactive people. Every church has got people who backslide. Every church has got... that. The, whoever wrote this didn't say, well, just write off a percentage and realize that's the way life is. He says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. If there's a sign of slipping, we intervene and we get involved. We have oversight. Now, he is not telling us there to be somebody else's Holy Spirit. He's not telling you there to go around and be a, a, a detective trying to figure out where somebody else has got a problem. But you know and I know that you can sit in a Sunday school class with people and go to church with people and you can begin to see signs in their lives when they are slipping away in their commitment to Christ. And when you see that, don't ignore it and don't just hide behind, well, I'm just going to pray about it. It means to lovingly go to them and give oversight. The idea of coming short is an interesting idea. It is the idea of a runner. Remember the illustration begins in this chapter that we're running a race. It's the idea of a runner in a marathon who is beginning to lose his pace and lose his rhythm and beginning to lag behind. It also has a military interpretation of a straggler, someone who's in a long march going to a battle and they are straggling behind and ultimately if somebody doesn't come along and get those stragglers and bring them back in line, they'll be AWOL. They will not be where they're supposed to be and the rest of the army will suffer because some have straggled behind. And so he says, you make sure that you're keeping everybody in line, moving in the right direction, running the race, keeping pace with where God wants them to be in their lives. Israel came short of God's goal at Kadesh Barnea. And there's a danger for us as believers that we would come short. He, he uses a phrase here, see to it. it. That see to it in the original is a plural command. He's talking to the entire body of believers that he's writing to. Not just to the pastor, not just to the deacons. He's talking to everybody. He says, see to it, watch over. The, the, the root word is episcopeo, and it means to have oversight. Now, it comes from episcopos, one who oversees, or the scripture translates as a bishop or an elder or an overseer. Because it is in the plural, what he's saying here is every one of us are to act like overseers. Every one of us are to act like, in this realm of coming short of the grace of God, we are to act like bishops and elders. We may not hold the title, but we're all supposed to act in that capacity that if somebody is falling short, we lovingly, we prayerfully, and under the leadership of the Spirit, we go to them and say, Brother, there's something I see in your life, and if you don't straighten it up, I don't think you're going to be here in six months. I've watched through 11 and a half years of pastoring this church some people who were very faithful 11 and a half years ago. 
somewhere along the line. They didn't go join another church. They just dropped out. They're still on the roll, but they've, they've just dropped out. They've come short of the grace of God. And somewhere there was a signal. Somewhere there was a warning light. Somewhere there was a sign that said they're not where they need to be or where they used to be. I can go back and think through my mind of people who were here on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. They were here before anybody. They were here after anybody. And now you can't find them anywhere. Why? Somewhere along the line, they began to slip. There began to be a crack. They began to make excuses or give reasons why they weren't going to do that anymore. And they began to drop out. They just wanted a little leave of absence. And before you know it, they were out of the picture. The writer of Hebrews says we're to make sure that our fellow believers are moving along in their faith. We're encouraging one another. We're exhorting one another. We're pushing one another along. We're helping one another because in a march, everybody gets tired at some point. Everybody gets weary at some point. And you need somebody who's got fresh legs and a fresh perspective to come along and say, hey, let's keep up the pace. Let's keep going. Let's keep moving in the right direction. Third thing, have I left, let something get under my skin that I should have put under the blood? Have I let something get under my skin that I should have put under the blood? Verse 15, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. I mentioned this morning that D.L. Moody said that this is what he believed, in his opinion, to be the number one sin that kept people from experiencing the power of God. Fred Wolf, who used to pastor the Cottage Hill Baptist Church in Mobile, Alabama, where there were some great movements of God. Back in the 70s, Manley Beasley and Ron Dunn and Miss Bertha and Jack Taylor went to uh, that church, and there was a great movement of God, and there's been some great revivals that have hit that church in seasons in that church's life. One day they had a revival they didn't expect to have. And it went for three weeks, every night for three weeks. God just moved in one Sunday and people began to be broken and people began to pray and people began to confess sin and they met every night for three weeks. Nobody had planned it. Nobody had orchestrated it. God just moved in and said, I've got some house cleaning I need to do. Fred Wolf said the number one sin that was confessed in those three weeks was the sin of bitterness. The number one thing that people came to the front or came to the altar or dealt with a counselor and talked about, the number one thing that came up over and over and over again was bitterness. People were just bitter. They were harboring a root of bitterness. And folks, bitterness will destroy you. It will destroy your home. It will destroy your relationships. It will de destroy your children. It will destroy a church. Bitterness is a vile and wicked thing. And it, whether it comes out of anger or come because you're holding a grudge, you know, you meet some people and every time you talk to them, they get historical. They've got to tell you what happened to them. They've got to tell you all their problems and how everybody hurt them. and how You know, I mean, they're looking for somebody new to tell this story to. Well, you know, if we wanted to line up and talk about all the people that have hurt us in our lives, we'd be here for three weeks, but it wouldn't be a revival. What good does it do? Have we blessed anybody by sharing that? 
Have we helped anybody or encouraged anybody by sharing that? No, unless we've told people how we've overcome it. You see, bitterness can get its roots in us, and how you handle a setback or a disappointment or a hurt has a lot to do with how far God can use you and move you in your life. If you live long enough, you're going to be hurt by somebody. You're not going to find a church where it's not going to happen. You're not going to be in a relationship where it's not going to happen. Somewhere along the line, some way, somehow, somebody's going to hurt you and cut you deeply. It's just a fact of life. How we deal with it is the reality that we have to face because if we don't deal with it, we will take it into every other relationship. It will not just stay between me and that person who offended me. It will go to the relationship with my spouse or with my children or with my peers or with my friends at my work. Wherever you go, it will begin to spill out. And it will poison you and poison everybody around you. Do you know who gets hurt the most when we as adults get bitter? The people we love the most, our children. When we get bitter, the people who are defiled by it, and he says, by this, many are defiled. The people who are defiled by our bitterness are the people that we would hope would never be defiled by it, but guess where? It's the poison spills out closest to where the bottle is, and it spills out on our family and on our friends. The roots go deep, but then the fruit begins to spread out a long way. And, and he says, it is springing up, causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. If we don't deal with bitterness, there are repercussions and consequences that we cannot even begin to imagine, and most of all, we cannot control. I've watched families where moms and dads have gotten bitter and that bitterness has turned into anger and resentment in their children because it wasn't dealt with. You know, Saul got bitter and resentful of David. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And at that moment, Saul said, that guy's a threat to me. And he began to go after him. And you know what happened to Saul? Saul not only lost his own life, but he tried to kill his own son. He threw a spear at his own son because he was so mad and so angry and so bitter. His son, who would have succeeded him in his dynasty, was almost killed by the hand of his own father. Why? Because Saul would never share his glory with anybody. Saul was always threatened. He was bitter. He tried to kill David. He tried to kill Jonathan. He consulted with a witch. He eventually took his life. It cost him his dynasty. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians 4 and verse 30. Ephesians 4 and verse 30. And I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to go ahead and share this. Uh, we were having a talk uh, on vacation this past week. When I was on staff in uh, Spartanburg, I had two and a half wonderful years on that staff, and the last 
year on that staff was not good at all. And the pastor and I had a falling out. We had a disagreement. And we had a falling out, and I said things I shouldn't have said. He's probably said things he shouldn't have said, but I don't answer for him, I answer for me. And I left a bitter person. I was mad. Now, I was righteously indignant in my eyes. But I was mad. And when I went to Roswell Street, my pastor understood what was going on, and he saw it. He knew it. And he graciously backed off and let me have some time. And he just tried to talk to me. I remember I'd been there about six months, and the staff always went to lunch. We didn't go eat Mexican food every Monday, but we went to lunch, and we were walking back in, and he put his arm around me, which was strange for him to do. Uh, and he put his arm around me. He said, did I ever tell you that the chairman of the deacons, who was my next-door neighbor, by the way, that the chairman of the deacons at your former church called me the night before we voted on you and tried to talk me out of bringing you on staff here? I said, no, sir. He said, well, the reason I didn't because I knew you weren't ready to handle it. He said, he did. I listened for about 10 minutes, and I said, dear brother, I know what I'm supposed to do. God bless you and your church. And about six months after that, I was at a conference in Houston, Texas, Second Baptist Church Houston, which is a huge church, and I'm walking down a sidewalk, and coming straight toward me is my former pastor. Now, in the meantime, I've had opportunity to spill my venom. And he's walking toward me, and God has begun to deal with me about this thing, and I see he and his wife walking toward me, and I think, Michael... It either dies here or it will eat at you for the rest of your life. And when we got close enough, I walked up and I hugged him. And I said, Fred, can I buy your lunch? And we sat down and for an hour and a half we visited and we shared. We both apologized and we both got it cleared up. And I can tell you looking back, that it was at that point that God began to bless my ministry at Roswell Street. Up until that time, I was doing a job and I was filling a position. But from that moment on, God began to bless and to use that ministry until when I left, we were the fifth largest youth ministry in the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, why did all that happen? There was a moment when I had to decide I was no longer going to let bitterness defile me or the people that I worked with or my family or my friends. And I had to let it go. And since that time, Fred has spoken in the two churches I have pastored. And we're good friends. In fact, after that, a year after that, he called me and asked me if I would be on his staff again. Now, I want to tell you something, folks. If you had known how many sour grapes there were between us, for him to do that and for me to do what I did, that was just God. That was just God. You see, you can walk around all your life with baggage, but I want to tell you, if you do that, you'll end up stooped over in guilt and in anger and in bitterness, and you'll die 
an unhappy person. Or you can say, you know, Lord, at least they haven't nailed me to a tree. You know, I'm a sinner. Whatever I get, I probably deserve. But you didn't deserve any of what you got, and you took it. You didn't curse them. You asked your father to forgive them. So who am I to hold a grudge? So in Ephesians chapter 4, it says to us, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31 tells us how we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. If we let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander stay in our lives, we're supposed to put it away along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Say, so, well, I can't forgive them. Then God can't forgive you. Well, you don't know what they did to me. No, but I know what you did to God's Son. You nailed him to a tree. And so if God can forgive me for what I've done to him, I can forgive somebody else for what they've done to me, even if I don't like it, even if I don't approve it, even if I think I'm right. I have to come to a point of saying, Lord, that's on the altar. The devil will whisper in our ear and say, Hey, don't let them push you around. Jesus says, Turn the other cheek. The devil whisper in your ear and say, you've got a right to feel this way. And Paul would tell us, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, not I, but Christ lives in me. The devil would say to us, don't ever let them forget what they've done to you. Jesus would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You've heard this statement before. Bitterness does more harm on the vessel in which it is stored than the life on which it is poured. It is the sin that keeps us from having revival. Because somebody in our past, an ex-spouse, a neighbor, an employer, an employee, somebody along the way ripped us off and tore our hearts out and we got angry about it and we didn't take it to the cross and say, Lord Jesus, I've got to die to that thing. One of the great turning points for me in my ministry here was when we were going through a difficult time in the early years. We'd had a, a tough situation. And it was before John Hempkin came on the staff. And we were walking in what used to be my old office by the old prayer chapel, walking down the sideway and sidewalk, and I was just... You know, I just wanted to tell somebody I was ticked off. And John happened to be there. And so he's a deacon. He's supposed to help his pastor. So, you know, I just spilled it on him. And I mean, I was just, I mean, my nostrils were flaring. Smoke was coming out of my ears. I mean, I was ticked. And John grabbed me on the shoulders and he said, Pastor, on behalf of everybody, I'm really, really Sorry. Now let's move on. You know what? Somebody just needed to say that to me. He listened. He let me lose some steam. I got in my flesh a little bit. And then he said, Pastor, 
I'm sorry. And it was okay. It was okay. And it's okay for you to lose your steam with somebody, but don't keep losing it. Lay it at the cross. Lay it at the altar. Number four, how you handle the word and worship will determine the extent to which God can work in you. First of all, and we'll go through this fairly quickly, you can't ignore what God says about morality. Verses 16 and 17 talks about the immoral person or the godless person or the fornicator. He's referring there to sin, the sin of sex outside of marriage, whether that be between married people with somebody else or between single people before they are married. And he talks about the immoral person in verse, chapter 13 in verse 4. He says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. I want you to look back at verse 16 at that little word, godless person. The godless person is the secular person, the sensual person that cannot see beyond immediate gratification and immediate self-satisfaction. The godless person is one who is completely lacking in a sense of awe about the things of God. There's no fear, there's no reverence, there's no honor of God. And ladies and gentlemen, you can for, uh, uh, forfeit your future, you can forfeit your family in a moment by one act. And it can all be over. Just by being godless and not thinking with a sense of awe about the things of God. That's what happened in Kadesh Barnea. The people of God had a chance to believe God and they began to think sensually. Remember what happened? It, it, before that, Moses had gone up to the mountain to get a word from God, and down in the valley, the people were having an orgy. God's people, delivered by God, crossing the Red Sea, seeing the miracles and the intervention of God, and they're down having, having a sex party at the foot of the mountain and calling it worshiping their God. And we have lightened up on the morals in America today, but God has not lightened up on what he has said about how we're supposed to live. Secondly, you can't ignore your privileged position. And I just want to summarize this real quick. You can't ignore your privileged position. Verses 18 through 24, he gives us his last comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai was the place of the law, verses 18 through 21. Mount Sinai was characterized by terror and majesty. God said, if you get close, if you touch, if you come up here, I'll kill you. I mean, they couldn't touch. No animal could get close. God had said, I'm circling around this mountain, and if anybody comes up that I haven't invited to come up, I'm going to deal with them severely. And God spoke through Moses and warned us through the law. There was a physical display of God's power, but the law did not save anybody. It just revealed to them that they were sinners. Now at Mount Zion, verses 22 through 24, Mount Zion is where David brought the Ark of the Covenant. Mount Zion is a picture of the presence of God. But the writer of Hebrews looks beyond the earthly Mount Zion, Jerusalem, and he looks to a heavenly city, and notice who he says is in Mount Zion. It's in a heavenly city where there's a myriad of angels 
in a general assembly. Now that phrase general assembly is a very poor translation. It, it really means in a festival. There are myriads of angels in a festive occasion, in a festival. They're having a celebration. Not only that, the church is there, the redeemed of the ages, Revelation 5, verses 11 through 14. All the rights of inheritance go to the firstborn. Those, that's us. We're the first, firstborn. The heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17. And Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, is there. And so what he says is, don't walk around in your life and your worship fearing God, but reverence God and love God and celebrate your relationship with Him. What he's saying to these Hebrews is, don't go back to all that ritual and all those systems and all those sacrifices. There's already been a sacrifice. You don't have to go through all that stuff anymore. There's been one sacrifice for you, and it is complete and full. And what he's trying to say to the Hebrews is, man, aren't you glad you live on this side of the cross instead of the other side of the cross? Can you imagine if we still lived under the old covenant? We'd be coming to church with our goats. Boy, that, that'd do wonders for the new atrium, wouldn't it? Have a little altar down here and a little place to catch all the blood when we sacrifice the animals and We'd be going through this and people would be out there and out on the street buying pigeons and doves and birds and sacrifices and all these kind of things. Man, aren't you glad that that price has already been paid for you? That's what he's saying. You need to understand your privileged position that we live in the day of grace and under God's grace. Now, number three, you can't worship. If you're going to let God work in your life, you cannot worship with a casual spirit. He says, let us show gratitude. We worship with awe and with reverence, but we worship with gratitude to God for what he has done for us. And there are three things there that I want to mention. First of all, obey the word. Verse 25, do not refuse him who is speaking. You see, worship and the word are interchangeable. They're intertwined. You cannot separate one from the other. Worship and the word are tied together in Scripture. They're always tied together. Worship is always built around the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We need to obey the Word, what God is trying to say to us. Secondly, worship with confidence. We receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, verse 28. These people were in shaky times. They were being persecuted. Things were tough. And what he's saying is, I know your circumstances are shaky I know your situations are shaky. I know you're not sure about what tomorrow holds. I know it's an uncertain time in which to live, but we have a God who cannot be shaken. We are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have a Holy Spirit that cannot be shaken. We have a Christ that cannot be shaken. We have a church that cannot be shaken. We are built on a solid rock, and we can't be shaken. Circumstances may be shaky, but our God's not shaky. But one day he's going to shake every system of this world and the only thing that's going to survive this world is the church of Jesus Christ. That's it. The word of God and the souls of men is all that's going to go to heaven. Number three, worship with reverence. Offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. His holiness should bring humility. His grace should stimulate gratitude. 
his consuming fire should remind us that one day our works and our worship are going to be tested as by fire. Remember when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost? He came with a sound of a mighty rushing wind and with fire. Fire produces light and dispels the darkness. Fire tempers us. Fire reveals. Fire burns away the dross so that what is important remains. You know what happens when we worship God with reverence and with awe? We get close to him and God begins to burn away from our lives that which is not pleasing to him. Now, I think it's in your notes. Is the quote by F.B. Meyer in your notes? Let's stand together and read that out loud together if we could. Let's read it together. O God, who art as fire, be thou a consuming fire to our inbred sins. Burn deeply into our inmost hearts until all that grieves thee is compelled to yield to the holy intensity of thy grace. And our whole being, made free from sin, begins to serve thee in holiness and righteousness through Jesus Christ, who came to kindle thy sacred fire on the earth. Let's pray together. Father, burn out of us that which is not pleasing to you. Use the light of your word to dispel the darkness in our hearts and the far corners and the reaches of our minds where we want to say off limits, but it's not. Lord, tonight some of us need to uproot some bitterness in our lives and put it on the altar and let you consume it and burn it and take it away from us. There's a situation or there's a person in our lives that we've just not been able to get over and somebody we've not been able to forgive. Father, tonight, before it defiles us or defiles our children or others that we love, help us to put it on the altar and to lay it before you. Lord, help us to live as grateful children living under a new covenant, forgiven and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, our prayer tonight is not use me, because in reality you are using us to the extent that you can. Our prayer tonight is make us usable. Make us vessels fit for use. Make us, remake us, mold us, reshape us. But don't let us be satisfied with getting close. We want more of you and less of ourselves. Our heads bowed and our eyes closed. In a moment, we're going to sing that song that we sang a few minutes ago in The Secret knowing God more. The words will be on the screen and I want to ask you to sing it with Mark as he leads us in it.
Maybe you need to come tonight to this altar and you need to take that root of bitterness and you need to lay it down. Maybe you need to write it on a piece of paper and you need to bring it to the altar and tear it up to remind yourself that on this day, at this time, I said I'm through with carrying this baggage. Maybe you just need to go to somebody in this room and ask them to forgive you. Maybe you need to go home and write a letter, make a phone call. But don't walk out of here carrying baggage that God never intended you for, to carry in the first place. Because it doesn't help you, it doesn't help your witness. So as our men wait for you, if you come today, the Sherwood story, and you're to be presented tonight, you can come down during this time. But the altar is open for all of us to do business with God and to seek Him. And so as Mark leads us in singing, let's encourage one another, as we're supposed to do, by singing these songs and saying to the Lord, Lord, this is what I want for me, for myself, for my life. This is what I need. This is what I want. So as they sing, you come right now. Will you encourage everyone by singing loud? Okay, let's lift our voice and honor the Lord. In the secret, in the quiet place.
You know, I've, I've never had a day where I've held a grudge or been bitter that I thought was a great day. Have you? I mean, it's just a sour taste in your mouth. But you know, the only way you ever want to get rid of that is when you taste and see that the Lord is good. And you find out the forgiveness and the grace and the goodness of God is far greater than whatever self-satisfaction you might think you get out of getting even with somebody or getting your way or proving that you're right. You know what? A hundred years from now, most of the stuff we argue and fuss about won't matter, will it? Most of it won't matter a year from now. So why do we let the enemy hook us with that? That we get so caught up that we want to be right and we want to be proven right and we want everybody to tell us that we're right rather than saying, Lord, you're the only one that's right and you're going to have to judge between the two of us. Paul said, I, I don't even judge myself. I'm going to let the Lord do that. Because, you know, the heart is deceitful. And we can talk ourselves into thinking that we're doing better than we really are, but it's until we put that mirror in our face and we say, Now, Lord, what do you say? And I've seen way too many people in my life that have gotten older quicker than they should or died sooner than they should or lived a bitter life because they just wouldn't let something go. And nothing is so important that it steals your joy. It's just not that important that you would let it steal your joy. So I want us to sing that song again. And if you're willing to say to God tonight, Lord, I want to know you more. And if there's even a hint of an area in my life that I'm trying to hold on to that's keeping me from knowing you more, then I want to get rid of that. I want you to expose it. I want you to show it. I want to see it because I want to remove it. I don't want to carry any baggage out of this room. I want to leave it here. And whether it's where you're standing or here at the altar, let's sing this song like we want to know him more, not just like it's a nice song, which it is. But Lord, I, I want to touch you. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? He that has clean hands. Lord, I want to touch you. I want to see your face. No man can see God and live unless he's clean before God. And so tonight, let's just, let's take a new step. We've not arrived this is not the end of the journey. This is just another step on the journey of knowing him more. And let's sing this as a song of consecration and commitment to the Lord. Lord, I want to know you more. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we sang real loud. And if that's the passion and the desire of our heart, we will sing this loud. So let's sing it to the Lord right now. Mark, let's sing that again. In the secret, in the quiet place.
as we have sung, we have said to you in our words and from our hearts, we want to know you more. The most important offering we give tonight is ourselves. Our substance follows, but ourself is what is most important. And Lord, I pray for anybody here tonight who is holding on to a hurt or to a feeling or to a situation that they just can't get beyond. And I pray tonight, Father, for the supernatural grace of God and the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit to set the captive free from the areas where Satan has a stronghold. To tear down the walls, to put away the bitterness and the wrath and the anger and the malice and the slander, and to move forward. Lord, I thank you that you just keep chipping away at us. You never let us be satisfied. I thank you, Father, for the opportunity tonight to give back to you as an expression to say, Lord, knowing you is a worthy investment because you've invested so much in us. So we honor you tonight, Father, with our giving. But most of all tonight, Father, we want to leave here honoring you with our lives. In Jesus' name.
our men are taking the offering. We're going to present some of the newest members of our church family. And, uh, Jim's going to introduce them. They're going to line up across the front after we get through. Uh, we're going to come by and shake hands with them. We got it. Yeah, I'm going down. I really am. I'm going down, Jim. I always do what an ex-Marine tells me to do. By the way, there is no ex-Marine. That's right. I always do what a Marine tells me to do. 